This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Sometimes when I was starting a new story and I could not get it going, I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. Those are the words of writer Ernest Hemingway. It's from a new three-part, six-hour documentary by renowned filmmakers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, simply titled Hemingway. Their latest work explores the life and legend of Oak Park native Ernest Hemingway, one of the 20th century's greatest writers and the man behind classics like A Farewell to Arms and For Whom the Bell Tolls. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you for having us. I'll start with you, Ken. What inspired you to take a closer look at the life of Ernest Hemingway? Well, you know, it may be right in that little clip you have right there (laughs) at the start. This is a grand, complicated, dark, romantic tale. But at the heart of it is somebody struggling to figure out a new way to express the stuff of the 20th century in basic elemental language. Uh, That one true sentence, the thing that he sought every day of his life, uh, sometimes couldn't, often could, is the story of one of the 20th century's greatest writers and a person who's had a profound effect on not just American literature, but all of world literature, and who nonetheless has the most complicated personal life. He created a mythology that is so impenetrable. It took us, Lynn and and I, two, six and a half years, just try to pierce the veils of that overhyped masculinity to get at a, a more vulnerable a more empathetic, a more interesting Ernest Hemingway, and Mm -hmm. and to try to wrestle his complex biography as well as his great literary output uh, to the ground. Yeah, the world saw him as a a man's man, but there was so much more. Um, When did you get introduced to Hemingway, Ken? I read The Killers was the first story I read as a 15-year-old. I can still remember my stunning shock at the language, at the racist language, at the violence, and yet there's no violence in it, at the threat. Uh, it was just so much below the surface, and he believed in the iceberg theories of, of things. Seven eighths should be below the surface, one eighth revealed, and that's a very telling uh, way to understand the spareness of, of Hemingway. It seemingly is simple, and then it just 
um, gobbles you up. And then I read Old Man and the Sea as an assignment later on in high school and read stuff later on in, a, in adulthood. But I found a little scrap of paper uh, not too long ago that said, you know, in the early 80s that we were already beginning the Civil War to do baseball, then Hemingway. And mm-hmm. we talked about it. Lynn joined us at the end of the 80s and we talked about it with our writer, Jeff Ward, and sort of mapped it out kind of in brief conversations. And it, but it wasn't until 2012 that we said yes and began to raise money, as we do in public broadcasting, and and then started filming in 2014. So it was a six-and-a-half-year process, wow. even after we started the first filming. Lynn, let's, let's bring you into this conversation. As Ken just highlighted, this series was about seven years in the making. How did you approach it? I think first we went back and read or reread as much of Ernest Hemingway's work as we could just to put our arms around what it was about his art that made this story worth telling. And then we began to get familiar with the archival record, you know, what existed of his work and the what he left behind of his manuscripts and his work process is remarkable, all beautifully archived and preserved. And then his personal correspondence, turns out he also saved that. So we had access to his inner life and his private conversations and sort of what he was thinking at pretty much any given moment of his life wow. and who he was talking to and in what way. I mean, he wrote thousands of letters and he saved carbon copies, which is interesting, thinking about his legacy. So we hear him speaking, writing home to his parents from the hospital in World War One after he was wounded, writing to the woman he fell in love with soon after that, getting the Dear John letter that really perhaps changed his life. So his correspondence is an incredible access to the what we would say kind of the actual human being, Ernest Hemingway. And then speaking to writers from around the world about, as Ken was saying, his influence, you know, worldwide, not just in the United States. And so hearing about what his work means to Edna O'Brien, Mario Vargas Llosa, Abraham Verghese, Tobias Wolf, Tim O'Brien, you know, hearing their perspectives about why they read him, what he's meant in their work and what he still has to say to us. And then working with our editors to put this, you know, huge pieces of this puzzle together. Yes, that was a puzzle. You you mentioned his um, being wounded during the war. He volunteered for the American Red Cross during the First World War and, of course, was badly injured during that time. You've got a quote from him in the doc where he says, you know, it gives you a satisfactory feeling to be wounded. It's like getting beaten up at a good cause. How did that experience change him, Lynn? It's probably fair to say that he was a different person after that, and he he might have said that himself. I mean, he described so beautifully this feeling of after he a shell exploded and he was badly wounded and multiple shrapnel wounds and his leg was really torn to pieces and he had a big head wound. He felt his soul leaving his body. That's what he said. It was like a handkerchief being pulled out of a pocket and floating around and then coming back. And that was a searing, traumatic experience and probably a a profoundly spiritual existential experience as well that never left him. So he had a sense early on of the fragility of life, the fact that it can all be taken away, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that you can't control your own destiny. These are the existential human themes. And he also saw the carnage and waste of World War I and developed, I think, a very healthy cynicism when it comes to what he says, the words sacrifice and glory when it comes to describing wars. Well, Ken, Hemingway had a complicated relationship, though, with his parents, especially his mom. Talk about that falling out and what he was dealing with at the time. At first glance, he's got this comfortable middle-class life in Oak Park, a a well-to-do suburb of Chicago, 
and yet there is a family history of mental illness. Indeed, in this nuclear family, uh, four of the eight people, two parents and, and six children, uh, at least four, will die from their own hand. Uh, his mother is sort of high-strung and dramatic and, as our writer Jeff Ward expertly said, self-dramatizing, all features that he'll have. And she's very narcissistic and sort of feels that Ernest isn't sort of repaying the bank account that she's made the deposits in. He's, he's overdrawn and they have a falling out. Um, he adores his father initially, and his father is a physician, but, it, but very depressed human being, and he sees and witnesses stuff in his father's rounds that are pretty dramatic and that provide the grist for many future stories, the theme of pregnancy and cesarean sections specifically and dying in childbirth runs throughout uh, Hemingway's work and his life in, in strangely parallel ways. Uh, his father also introduces him to the natural world, and when we think about Hemingway, when you look at someone who can see the natural world so beautifully, who can see human nature so beautifully, how men and women get along or don't, and see, as Lynn described perfectly, uh, the absurdities of war and the tragedies yeah. of war. So there's a dynamic going on in his family that, you know, he is both rebelling from and repelled by, and, you know, he reconciles with his mother but never forgives her. His father's suicide causes him to reconsider everything and sees him as a coward and yet blames the mother for driving. It's a very complicated dynamic, and you begin to realize the opening of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina about, you know, happy families are happy in the same way and all unhappy families are, are different and unique, that this was, of course, in the midst of the outwardly prosperous suburban life, a very tragic and complicated family, and it's all going to adding the, the PTSD yeah. of World War One and concussions and alcoholism and other things going to inevitably not turn out well for Ernest Miller Hemingway. Now, speaking of his relationship with his mother, his relationship with women in general and the way he portrayed women in his work, that's something that he was often criticized for. Writer Edna O'Brien doesn't believe it. Let's hear what she has to say about that. And then on the back end, Lynn, I want to get your take. She worked out from under him and sat up and straightened her skirt and coat and tried to do something with her hair. Jim was sleeping with his mouth a little open. Liz leaned over and kissed him on the cheek. He was still asleep. She lifted his head a little and shook it. He rolled his head over and swallowed. Liz started to cry. She walked over to the edge of the dock and looked down to the water. There was a mist coming up from the bay. She was cold and miserable, and everything felt gone. Now, I would ask uh, his detractors, female or male, just to read that story. And could you, in all honor, say that this was a writer who didn't understand women's emotions and who hated women? You couldn't. Nobody could. So, Lynn, does your research confirm that or deny it, or is the truth somewhere in between? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, the interpretation of literature is clearly a very subjective experience for all of us. I personally feel that 
what Edna says rings true to me. And we love that she gave us that perspective for the film in that, you know, the mystique or the, the persona of Hemingway, as Ken was saying, is such a brittle facade. And beneath that is a much more sensitive human being who does understand people and tries to represent the complexities of men and women and how we don't get along and misunderstand each other. And in particular, in this particular story, which Edna was reading from, it's called Up in Michigan. It was written early in Hemingway's career. It was considered obscene and could not be published. And it, what happened before the scene that we just heard is that a man and a woman have a sexual encounter that we would now perhaps label as a date rape. It's certainly something a woman doesn't want to have happen, mm -hmm. and it happens, and she's not happy afterwards. And as you see, we identify, and Hemingway wants us to feel what the woman feels. The man's asleep. Whatever happens, we don't even we don't know and we don't care. It's her feeling of having been taken advantage of in some way, and it wasn't what she wanted. That's what he's after. So to say that he hates women or doesn't like women or understand women makes no sense when you read this story. Yeah. He wanted to show toxic masculinity and how it affects women, and that's what he was after. Now, in his personal life, that's a different story. Right. Well, he he fell in love over and over and over again, right? He was married four times, uh, and, yeah. and Ken, the women in his life seem mm -hmm. to play a, a big role in his work. You cast big-name actors like Meryl Streep and Carrie Russell and so forth to portray the wives. What went into the casting, Ken? Well, I take away the adjective big-name and just replace it with very good actors. Uh, that's what we're looking for, not the celebrity or the, the size of the type. And we've worked with uh, Meryl Streep and with Patricia Clarkson before. We're new to Carrie Russell and Mary Louise Parker. They were fantastic. He is a serial monogamist. He loves falling in love. But as Lynn suggested earlier, this receiving of a Dear John letter from his first love, I think yeah. really totally upended him in, in a similar existential way as the experience in World War One at 18 years old had sort of upended his world. And so I think he enjoyed the romance of it. He's very romantic. He's very loving. And he, he understands the intimacy between a man and a woman. But something happens. He, he worries. He, I think, maybe yeah. feels some kind of doubt about it, self-sabotage is involved, you know, there's, there's all, you know, maybe it's the writer needing yeah. new material. So a lot of what we characterize as his misogyny in stories and in, in real life is right. legitimate and yeah. inexcusable and uh, unforgivable. That's Ken Burns along with Lynn Novick. From jazz to baseball, the Civil War to Vietnam, and from Mark Twain to now Ernest Hemingway. These two filmmakers have helped us understand the American experience like no others. Ken and Lynn, thanks for joining us on Reset. And that's it for today's Reset. For more great conversations with directors, writers, musicians, and more, make sure to join us for about 20 minutes each day, Monday through Friday. And tell your friends. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.